We are about helping people find and follow Jesus. If you ever wondered, hey, what's Crosspoint Baptist about? We want people to know Jesus as their Savior and Lord and then live their life for Him and, and just come do the same where you're telling other people about Jesus and what He's done for you. We're going to continue in our series. We started this series last week, and Lord willing, we'll finish it next week because it's a short book we're going through. But we're calling this The Priorities of Life, the book of Haggai. If you've ever wondered what that Old Testament minor prophet is, Haggai is about, it's about the priorities of life. And that's why we're calling it this. Um, the minor prophets aren't called minor because what they say is unimportant. They're called minor because it's, it's short. Well, they, they, they hit you with both barrels real quick. And so the, if you had brought your Bible, turn to Haggai chapter 2. If you can't find Haggai, it's right in between the Z's. Zephaniah and Zechariah, it's in between those. And if you turn too many pages, you'll probably miss the whole book. But Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9 is where we're going to be this morning. A sermon I'm calling, The Dangers of Getting Stuck in the Past. If you're with us last week, maybe you would know the context of what's going on in the book of Haggai. But in case you're, you weren't here with us, let me bring you up to speed. Because if you understand the context, what's going on in Haggai, the, whole, the book makes so much more sense. In order to send Haggai, you got to back up even further. You know, Generations before, there was a king named Solomon. Uh, he was the one that God called to build his temple. And, and, ha- and Solomon built a spectacular temple. And the, the temple was the center of worship for the, of Yahweh for the, the Jewish people. But after Solomon's death, there was a civil war that broke out. Okay, and a civil war, and the nation was split into two with uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Well, Jerusalem is in the south. It's in Judah. Well, in 585 B.C., The Babylonians came in, they sacked Jerusalem, they laid Jerusalem to waste, and they took the people away in captivity. And the people were in captivity for 50 years. And eventually they were allowed to leave Babylon, make the the walk all the way back to Jerusalem, which is nearly 1,700 miles, and the people chose to make that. And But when they get back into land, they start rebuilding the temple. They start rebuilding the temple. They start making sacrifices. So we're off to a good start. But then work on the temple stopped. Work on the temple stopped. And what happened was the people took their focus off God. And instead they started focused on themselves. They started focused on their own homes, their own families, their own wants, their own desires. And for 14 years they failed to focus on God. And so God through the prophet Haggai told the people to focus on the most important thing. And the most important thing is God. And so Haggai is also a very unique book in our Bibles. Because usually what happens is the people, they're awful, they're terrible, they're rotten, they're not living for God. And God raises up a prophet to go to the people and say, hey, you're terrible, you're awful, you're rotten, turn to God. And usually what happens, or kind of one of the things that sometimes happens is the prophets are ignored. That's kind of like best case scenario. Worst case scenario is the, the prophets get killed for doing exactly what God told them to do. It's kind of like being a pastor. But I'm bump. Hopefully you appreciate that as much as I do. But anyways, but when God spoke to Haggai, the people actually listened. And God tells the people, consider your ways. He said that two times in chapter one. And so this time they listened. But now we've got a new problem. The old problem was they weren't living for themselves. They were living for themselves. They're not living for God. They got past problem number one. But guess what comes after problem number one? 
Anybody? Yeah, problem number two. You're right. Very good. Well, let's read about problem number two in Haggai chapter two, verse number one. It says in the seventh month on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it nothing in your eyes? Here's my first point. Point number one. In order to move forward from the past, you must let go of the past. If we consider how much time has transpired in the book of Haggai so far, it starts to all make sense. Because Haggai chapter 2 begins on the 21st day of the 7th month, and the year still being is still 520 B.C. Well, that means it's October 17th, 520 B.C. on our calendars. If you remember in chapter 1, God spoke first to Haggai. It was August 29th, the same year. And so then the people began work, and they began work on the temple on September 21st. So that means it's been less than a month. The people have been working on the temple for less than a month. I doubt they've done much than just sweep up the debris. I'm sure they haven't really gotten to the demo process of the remodeling of, of the temple yet. But there has been less than a month, and they're already discouraged. There's something else going on here that we need to know. It's the seventh month. On the seventh month, that's the month when God's people were to celebrate the festival of booze, or maybe you know it as the Feast of Tabernacles. Okay, This is a celebration that God told the people, celebrate this to remind them of everything God during the Exodus. If you remember, the people were enslaved in Egypt. And through Moses, God, God freed the people from, the, from Pharaoh. And so I have to think this was a very special celebration for these people in the book of Haggai. Because remember, they were slaves for 50 years. And so I have to imagine they greatly identified with the people of the Exodus. But during the Exodus, the, the, the people, they cross the Red Sea. God parts the Red Sea. They, draw, they walk across on dry land. And then God releases the, dread, the Red Sea. All of Pharaoh's army is destroyed. And then it's 40 years in the wilderness. God's giving manna every day and every night. God is a pillar of fire by, by nine, a pillar of smoke by day. And he led the way for the people. And I don't know if you remember this, but for 40 years, their shoes didn't wear out. If you have teenage boys, I have to appreciate what a miracle that is. Their shoes didn't wear out for like 40 years. And so God is providing for them. And the, the, the festival of booze is where they're to remember that. They're to remember God's provision. And then the temple is a reminder of God's presence. This is the place where God reveals his glory to his people. And so at this time in Haggai chapter 2, the people are re rebuilding the temple. God's presence. And they're also celebrating the festival of booze. That's God's provision. But then something happens. And what happens is they're getting stuck thinking about how good things used to be. They're like, oh, can't you remember how great it was back in the day? They're, they're getting stuck thinking about the glory days, right? And it's so bad that God sends a message to Haggai to deliver to his people. And the message comes in three questions. The first question is, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Basically, which one of you is old enough to remember what Solomon's temple used to look like? I think there might have been a few people. They were probably young then. They're, they're old now. There might be a few, but the vast majority of people weren't even there. 
And so God really wants him to think about the glory of the first temple. And then God asks a second question. He says, how do you see it now? God's asking him, compare the glory, first temple versus second temple. Camera A, camera B. And then God asks a third question to really know where, where God's going with this. He asks, is it nothing in your eyes? I think what God is saying is basically he's saying, does this seem like nothing to you? God's saying glory is glory. So what is it to you? And basically, who are you to say what is glory and what's not glory? See, there's apparent discouragement. There's apparent disappointment among the people. And so what God is doing is he's addressing their bad attitudes. Does God care about our attitudes? I think we'd all clearly say, yes, he does care about our attitudes. And so I think what's happening here in in the people's mind is they're looking at the the temple now and comparing it to the temple then. And they're kind of like, well, hey, the table's supposed to be over here. It's not over. It's not supposed to be over there. God doesn't want the table over there. It's supposed to be, oh, the candelabra, the, the candlestick holders. It's supposed to look this certain way. God's not, doesn't like it to look this certain way. Oh, wasn't it so much better back then? That's what they're doing. And so in doing so, they're not really building the house for God. They're building it for themselves. And so since they're building the house for themselves, what they're doing is they're forgetting about God. People that get stuck in the past, this is what the people are doing. They're stuck in the past, and now they're discouraged in the present. They're thinking, oh, back then everything was so much better. So they're not doing moving forward for God's work because the work's not matching up or even comparing in their own eyes because they're stuck in the past. And so what's happening is they have this really Debbie Downer attitude. And this Debbie Downer attitude is affecting the work of the people. And it's so bad that God sends another message. And he does that so the work will get done. And before we start pointing fingers at, fingers at the people, I think we have to realize this happens to us too. We, we always remember the past with such fondness and it's the good old days. But really we're looking at the past through rose-colored glasses. Oh, back then, everything was so good. But then we forget how the bad used to be. I'm guilty of this, personally speaking. I mean, I, I think of the 1980s with such fondness and nostalgia. And I forget that interest rates were 15.8%. I was a kid. I didn't pay interest rates. I didn't know what an interest rate was. So that's what I do. I think of the 70s with such fondness. But I don't remember the, the gas rationing that was going on in the 70s, Right? It's hard for us to move forward when you're always living your life looking in the rearview mirror. And there's a lot of people that don't want to move forward for the past because they think that somehow if we move forward from the past, we're going to lose something that we had in the past. They'll say things like, oh, wasn't the church so much better when we had pews? And now we have these stupid padded chairs. I mean, padded chairs are pretty nice, guys. I mean, come on. I mean, back in Jesus' day, the people would stand and the preacher would sit. I think we need to bring that back. Ethan, give me a padded chair. I'll sit. Everyone else stand. And we're going to, I don't see anybody rising. So I'll just keep standing and preaching, right? Or people say, oh, the music was so much better when we read from the hymnal. Well, today we put these, the words up on the screen. I mean, it's pretty convenient, right? There's nothing wrong with the past, but we sometimes have to move forward if we can't let go of the past. But here's something that happens in a believer's life. This, this really happens to us. 
Something happens during our life and it changes our life and we don't like it. So what we do is we change or we refuse to change certain aspects so we can forget about that other thing. Maybe it's death. Maybe it's divorce. It's something we don't like. And since we don't like it, maybe it's trauma, maybe it's something, we don't like that thing that happened to us. We main control of the things we can control, so to try to minimize that thing that, that, that happened to us that we don't like. There's certain parts of my childhood that I don't exactly, I'm fond of. And so what I do is I think of 1985 again as an example of, 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 of just great time in my life because that's before that event happened. But then I have to remember 1985 was before I met my wife in 2003. 1985 was before we had our first child in 2006. 1985 was before all of our children that would come after that. There's nothing wrong with 1985. But if I can't let go of that, then God maybe can't bless me in ways that he wants to in the future because I'm holding on too too tight to the past. I do that. The truth is you do that. And if we're not careful, the church can do that too. And so the people of God right here in chapter 2, they're discouraged because there's this connection to this past. But there's another reason they get discouraged. When Solomon built the temple, he had 180,000 men. And it took him seven years to build the temple with that 180,000 men. Now, the people have 50,000 men, women, and children to get all together. So it's almost like they're discouraged. They're thinking, oh, it's going to take us forever to build the temple. We're never going to be able to build a temple as amazing as Solomon built. I mean, how could these people that moved back from the land ever do what Solomon did? And if you think about it, they're not necessarily wrong. They start thinking, well, our best days are behind us. We'll never be able to achieve what we've done in the past. And I don't think we should look at those people and say, oh, ye have little faith. Right? Because we shouldn't have that type of attitude with them because their concerns are real. Nostalgia with the past is very real and has a very powerful grip on us sometimes that we can have this sense of doom that we can never achieve something that was done in the past. Let me give you some examples from my personal life. When I was in my 20s, I was strong. I was like real strong. I would go into the gym and put 300 pounds on the bench press and crone it and just rep it out. And today, I'm pretty sure I can't bench my body weight. (laughs) So then what I think is, well, what's the point? If I can't do what I used to do, then what's the point of even doing? And so then I don't go. And I hurt myself. I think because I'm never destined to be able to do what I did in the past, what's the point? And I do that. And the truth is you do that. And the people of God are doing that right now in Haggai chapter 2. But we also, we love these moments from the past because those times were great. But now sometimes it seems like those times are gone and they'll never be back again, right? If you can't see yourself in the people of Haggai's days because you're not trying to see yourself. Because it's so easy to be serving the Lord and you can't help but think about how great things used to be. I remember the year the Cross Point Baptist Church baptized 17 men, women, and children. That was a great year. It was just last year. It's easy to remember, right? I remember the Easter Sunday. We had 331 people in in an Easter service. It was amazing. And it's so easy to look at the past and say, we'll never be able to do it again. And the truth is, if we focus on the past, we'll be right. We'll never be able to do it again. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about a similar situation. Philippians chapter 3 verse 13. Paul says, but one thing I do. Forget what lies behind. And I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal, the prize, or the upper call in God and Christ Jesus our Lord. When the Apostle Paul wrote that, he had done some pretty amazing things. He did some terrible things too. But he went to places and preached the name of Jesus to people that had never even heard the name of Jesus. And he he started churches. And now Paul says, I need to forget of all that stuff behind. And I press forward to the goal, the upper call in Christ Jesus. King Solomon, the guy who built the, the first temple, he said, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. You know why Solomon said that? He said, because our memories are not always the most reliable sources. It is so easy to remember the past glories and then forget about all that bad stuff. Because we as human beings and even as believers, we have selective memories. We only remember the parts we want to remember and we forget all the stuff we want to forget. And so the question is, how do you move on? How do you move on? How do you move on from the good stuff? How do you move on from the bad stuff? How do you keep serving God and building his kingdom? How is it possible for people of faith to not live looking in the rearview mirror? The word of God tells us. Look in Haggai 2 verse 4. God says, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I have made with you, when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Here's the second point for us this morning. Point number two. In order to move forward from the past, you must be strong, work hard, and trust God. So those are the three things that God says to Zerubbabel and Joshua. He says that they are to be strong, they are to work hard, and they are to trust God. Are those three things we can remember? Be strong, work hard, trust God. So God says be strong. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It really should because God has already said this earlier to another Joshua earlier in our Old Testament. Read in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. The word of God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And then later, Paul's going to tell the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13. He says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. God tells his people repeatedly in the Bible to be strong. You know why? Because naturally we're not strong. Our natural disposition is to be weak, especially when times are tough. Especially when there's times where things are harder than we want them to be. And then God said work. God said work, but I said work hard because I believe that's implied. I believe it's implied because is there one time in the Bible where God says, put forth a minimal effort? He never says that. Never, not once. God says to work. I'm saying work hard because I think our natural disposition is to be lazy. It's natural for us to think God's going to have to do this one. 
There's times in our life where things are so messed up that we think this is just beyond us. We're going to have to let God do this, uh, this situation. If this ever is going to get fixed, fixed up, we're just going to have to let go and let God. Let me ask this. Where does it say that in the Bible? It never says that in the Bible. The Bible says work because it's going to take work for, on our part for God to do what he wants to do through us. Can God do absolutely everything in a situation, make it work out? The answer is clearly yes. But since Genesis 1-1, he works primarily through people. Okay, He's working through people. I mean, salvation, that is totally and utterly of God. But yet he uses people to make that happen. Let me give you another example. There was a day when Moses wanted God, he asked for help so Israel would win a battle. And Moses had to hold his hands up. If Moses put his hands down, the people started to lose. But if he held his hands up, the people won. Did God need Moses to hold his hands up? The answer is clearly no. Okay, God can, can do that, can make them win if he wants. But Moses holding his hands up was an act of faith. So Moses had to be strong and he had to work hard. God is all powerful. Again, he can clearly do every aspect of something But the sovereign God of the universe works through people to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And then I'm saying we need to trust God. And I'm saying that because he says, for I am with you. Because as God is for you, who can be against you? That's what Paul taught us in Romans chapter 8. And I'll paraphrase it this way. That if God is with you, then who cares who's against you? God is with you. It doesn't matter who's against you. You're on the side of victory, right? If, if I'm on God's side, then victory's already been won. So I am not fighting from a position of inferiority. I'm fighting from a place of victory. And so God tells us to be strong, work hard, and trust him. And please note, things most likely are not going to work out the way you think they're going to work out. It never in the history of time has anybody ever looked at what God did and said, oh yeah, God, I see what you're doing there, and that's exactly the way I would have done it. Anybody ever said that? Raise your hand. I see no hands. Right. Has anybody ever said, hey God, I see what you did there, and I'm so glad you took my advice? Nobody says that. You know why? Because that has never happened. If we're being honest, we should say, didn't see that one coming. Have you said that? I don't need your hands. I know they are all be going up, right? And we should say that's definitely not the way I would have worked things out should I have been God. But thank you, Lord, that I'm not God. That's what we should say because that sounds a lot closer to reality to me. And then God says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. What did God tell the people, his people to do in chapter one? To rebuild the house of the Lord. To rebuild the temple. The people were to rebuild the temple. If you're, a, if you're a follower of God, if you worship Yahweh, rebuild the temple. That's what they were to do. We don't have a temple today. The way the people did then, right? Where is the temple of God today? We are the temple of God. Believers are the temple of God. Read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple And that God's spirit dwells in you. So how does the spirit of God, the third member of the Trinity, how does he remain in our midst today? He lives inside believers. Why should we be strong, work hard, and trust God? Because God's spirit is in us. 
So it's not you that's going to accomplish anything. It's God's spirit in you working through you to do what he wants to do. And so then the message is don't get stuck in the past. Move forward. And while you're moving forward, be strong, work hard, and trust what God is doing. I have to be honest here. Sometimes I'm preaching these messages to me as much as I'm preaching to you because I'm writing these messages and I don't want to be strong. I don't want to work hard. I forget that God is still here and he's with me. So I have to preach these to me as much as I'm preaching to you. But there's something else we need to recognize. Read in Haggai 2 verse 6. The word of God says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. Here's my third point for us this morning. Point number three. In order to move forward from the past, you have to know that God did it once and God will do it again. So picture what happened here. God just told the people, hey, be strong, work hard, trust me. And again, God said that because the people didn't want to be strong. They didn't want to work hard. They forget that God is there. They didn't trust him. But who is talking Verse 6 six says, for thus says the Lord of armies, it is God who's speaking. He is the Lord of hosts. In the Hebrew, it is Yehovah Sabah. You got to get that real guttural thing to speak Hebrew. That's what's going on there. It means the Lord of armies. Maybe that's what the translation in your Bible says. And what does the Lord of armies say? He says, yet once more, in a little while... I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations. Do you know what the Lord of Army is saying? He's saying he's going to grab a hold of the heavens. He's going to grab a hold of the earth, and he's going to shake them. He's going to grab the nations, and he's going to do something that's going to get their attention. I mean, picture what, he, what God is saying. He said, I'm going to get their attention. I'm going to do something to wake them up. I'm going to do something that's going to cause them to come to their senses. I'm going to shake them. You know that there was a shaking that happened earlier in our Bibles? Did you know that? There, there, the, the, there was a shaking that happened earlier, but right now the people are worried about the gold and the silver. They're thinking, oh, but when Solomon built the temple, he had gold, he had silver. We don't have gold or silver. Since we don't have gold or silver, we won't make the temple as amazing as he did. So what's the point? And it's like God saying, did you forget that I'm the one that makes gold. I'm the one that makes silver. I'm the one that takes the neutron and the proton and the right number in electrons. I make gold. I make silver. And every other element there is. What's it to you? What, remember what the purpose behind the temple was? The t- purpose of the temple was so the people could see the glory of God. Back up in Haggai chapter 1 verse 8. This is what God says. He says, go up on the hills and bring wood. God didn't say bring the gold. God didn't say bring the silver. He said, bring wood 
And he says, and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And here it is. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. The temple is to be rebuilt so that God is glorified. So that people that don't know the Lord of of armies will come to know the Lord of armies. So people that are far from God come close to God and they come to know God. That is the purpose behind the temple. And so these people, they end up building the temple. And it was a magnificent temple. And then Herod's going to come in hundreds of years later. And he's going to build a temple that's even bigger and more grand than the first two temples. It was so impressive. In fact, it's so impressive that the disciples of Jesus could hardly get past it. If you read this in Mark chapter 13, there's this day when Jesus and the disciples are leaving the temple. And the, the, peop- the disciples turn around and they say, look, teacher, speaking to Jesus. Do you see that wonderful stones, wonderful buildings? And then Jesus says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be, be left one, here one stone on top of another. It will not be thrown down. The temple was not the main point. The main point was making the name of God known to those that don't know him. The main point is the glory of God. Nothing else matters but making the Lord of armies known to a lost world. Because the temple was the place where God's presence was on the earth. If you think about it, back before the fall, back before Genesis chapter 3, there was no need for a temple because God and man, there's no separation. Adam is walking with God in the coolness of the morning. No separation. That's why they didn't need a temple. But then sin entered the world. Sin entered the world, and now there's separation because God is holy and we are not. And so God tells the people to build a temple so that they, 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 they could, he could reveal his glory to people. And, and then the, God's glory, it's in the holies of holies, but then there's still a curtain, right? And there's a curtain that still represents, hey, there's still separation from you and, and, and God. And then what happened at the moment of Christ's crucifixion, the moment Christ died, that, 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 that curtain was torn from top to bottom. You know what that represented? No more separation. No more separation. We can come into the very presence of God. When Jesus was murdered, he allowed evil men to take him and murder him. That means on the cross, the cross was not forced on Jesus. No man could take the life of Jesus. He willingly gave it. He freely gave his own life. And so he himself, Christ, becomes the final sacrifice for our sins. So there'd be no more separation. Hebrews chapter 9 explains how the sacrifice of Jesus effectively rebuilt the temple with his body. Because under the old covenant, sacrifices had to be continually made in the, in the most holy place for the sins of the people. But lead, read what Hebrews chapter 9 says. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, even though the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is, not by of this creation... He entered once for all into the holy places, not not by a means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, in the temple, there was a sacrificial system that had to happen over and over and over again, and it was replaced by a person, Jesus Christ. 
So we no longer offer sacrifices in a physical temple because Christ has come. He's the final sacrifice. And so thus, the former glory is eclipsed by by this glory. His name is Jesus. Time out. Let's go back in time for a second because we were talking about the shakings of the earth. Do you remember there was an earlier shaking in our Bibles? In the book of Exodus, the the people leave uh, Egypt. They're wandering and they're at Mount Sinai. And and God reveals his glory up on 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 Mount Sinai. And there's thunder and lightning. The whole earth shakes. And the people are scared. They're saying, hey, Moses, you go up there and you talk to God. And you come back and you tell us what he said because we're scared. There's just too much glory. We can't handle it. So that's what happened in the Old Testament. You know there's another shaking coming. Haggai chapter 2 is pointing to the end of our Bibles. Where where the day of the Lord is going to come. Where Christ returns as the visible King of kings and Lord of lords. To consummate this this coming earthly kingdom for all eternity. It's going to be amazing. And then after Christ appears, heavens and earth is going to pass away. And it's going to be replaced by a new heavens and new earth. And then this new Jerusalem is what tells us is going to descend. It's this huge, amazing, glorious city. And it's going to come down to the earth. And then the apostle John tells us there'll be no temple in the city. For this temple is, is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's what John tells us in Revelation 21. And then he also said that the kings of the earth will bring their glory into the city and that it will contain, John says, the glory and the honor of all the nations. And so the end of our New Testament, the the book of Revelation, it tells us this is the fulfillment of what Haggai was telling us about. It's a day when God is going to shake the nations. And on that day, the Lord's going to fill his house with glory. And that glory is going to be so much greater than all the times before. Why? No more separation. It's like God's taking us back to the garden. He's redeeming what was lost because of sin. And on that day, God's going to give his peace. It's an eternal peace. It's peace that that we're going to live with God forever. And his, his love is going to reign forever. And you're wondering, I know you're what you're wondering, like, when? When's this going to happen? God tells us when it's going to happen. Pastor John's going to name a time. Yeah, I am, because he tells us. He tells us in a little while. That's what he tells us, in a little while. When's a little while? I don't know. But I have to think it's like coming real soon. Because God said this 2,500 years ago. I have to believe it's happened like real soon. So the question is, what do we do while we wait? We're to build the house of God. The purpose of the church is rebuild the house of God. And the, the, it's not a building. That's not the house of God. There's so many that want to say that the Old Testament temple is analogous to today's church. Not true. Believers are the temple of God. We are the temple of God. So God is glorified when we go and we tell people about Jesus. And when somebody that doesn't know Jesus comes to know Jesus, we're building the temple of God. So we're to be strong, we're to work hard, and we're to trust God in what he's doing. In order to do that, we must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we do that, that's when the temple of God, well, that's, I mean, that's when God's kingdom grows. And so we're to strive forward, not you know, without fear. How can we do that? Because we know how the story ends. 
That's how we can do what we're doing and still not be afraid because we know how the story ends. When I was little, much I'm pretty big now, but when I was younger, I'll say that, I watched scary movies. I don't watch scary movies anymore. I don't like scary movies. But let's pretend I watched one of those scary movies that was so scary back in the day. You know what would happen? Nothing. You know why nothing would happen? Because I know how the story ends. They don't scare me anymore. When I was a kid, I was also afraid that there's going to be a meteorite come is going to hit the earth and we're all going to die. They terrified me. And then I got afraid because, oh, acid rain. And then I was told, oh, it was global cooling. Then it's global warming. Now it's climate change. And now that scares me now. You know why none of that scares me? Because I've read the end of the book. I know how the story ends. Okay? I, none of it scares me because I know how it's all going to go down. Here's how it's going to go down. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to shake the whole earth. In the meantime, we are to devote ourselves to building God's house. Seeking first the kingdom of God. And there's some people, some preachers that say silly things like, oh, how to live your best life today. You want to know how to live your best life today? The only way you can do that is to die today and go to hell tomorrow. Because every day in heaven is going to eclipse the best day you had on this earth is going to be like nothing compared to the, the, every day in heaven. And there's this day that we're going to go to be with Jesus and it's just going to be amazing from then on. In the meantime, live for God. Like right now. Make your life about God. Be zealous for the work of God. Don't be deceived into thinking what you're doing doesn't matter. Because it does matter. If you're telling people about Jesus, you're building the house of God. You're, you're revealing the glory of God when we're telling people about Christ. Because our God is with us. His spirit is in us. And a little while, he's going to make all things new, right? If you belong to him. So be strong. All you believers, work hard and fear nothing but God. And in Christ, the Lord army says, I will give you peace. That's what he promised us in verse 9 of Haggai chapter 2. Peace between God and man is found through a personal relationship with Jesus. Because we're sinners. And our sin, that's the separation. We can't be near a holy, perfect God because of our sin. But then Jesus comes and he pays for our sin. On that cross, he paid all of my sins and all of your sins so we could be with God. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. Have you called on the name of Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone? Not in anything else, but only in the work of Jesus and what he did. If you haven't done that, I would encourage you, I'd beg you, I'd implore you to call on Jesus. To recognize your sinfulness and turn from and turn to a holy, perfect God that loves you. Loves you so much that he died in your place. The Bible says whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. So you must call to him. To say something along the lines of, I'm a sinner. And you died for me in my place. I give you my life. And I pray this name of Christ. Amen.